Hello, and welcome to Securities, a podcast and newsletter devoted to science, technology, finance, and the human condition. I'm your host, Danny Crichton. And folks, well, it's been a little while over here as we finished off season one of the podcast last year and are about to get the tapes rolling on season two. Over the holidays, I looked over the three dozen plus episodes of securities we published, from speculative fiction and the geopolitics of agriculture to building software and biology as well as American stupidity. One theme emerged as extraordinarily popular, and that is risk and decision making. So our producer here, Chris Gates, and I thought we'd bring back Annie Duke again to talk more about the subject. Duke is a World Series of Poker champion who researches cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and recently published her new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Our very own Josh Wolf here at Lux Capital joined her, and the two discussed the challenges of walking away, why professional poker players are better at quitting than amateurs, the geopolitics of war, and the importance, as always, of pre-mortems for quitting. Let's start with the two of them discussing a challenge even greater than scaling Mount Everest, which is going up almost to the peak, and then deciding to turn around without hitting the summit. I have to imagine that so many people forget the meta aspect of it is an option and are often anchored by the negative balance of quitting. You know, the quote that mm -hmm. winners never quit and quitters never win. And so there's a expectation that the virtues of perseverance and stick with itness are the things that people have to cling to. It's got to be psychologically so hard for people to accept that the yeah, smarter I mean, thing to do is to quit. Per, the people who persevere are the heroes of the story. You open your book about the heroes of the story that are the ones that were celebrated, but really the true heroes in a particular story that you open with were the people that quit and survived. Yeah. I was just frustrated by the fact that fact that people think of grit as a virtue and quitting as a vice when it's like, why? The option to quit is so incredibly valuable. There's lots and lots of stories of grit. Many of them are about Mount Everest. I mean, to be fair, you have to be very gritty to climb all the way to the, to the top of Mount Everest, right? The three climbers that this story is about, the heroes of this story, are Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky, and Dr. Lou Kosicki. And you remember like in the 90s that these climbing expeditions on Everest started to get very popular. And they were part of one of these climbing expeditions in the 90s, uh, eight climbers, three climbing Sherpas and one expedition leader. Now they weren't the only expedition on the mountain, right? Because these were very crowded. So there were lots and lots of different expeditions on the mountain. They go from base camp to camp one, to camp two, to camp three, to camp four, acclimating. And then from camp four is the day that you head for the summit. So they get to camp four. And it's summit day. And the expedition leader had set a turnaround time. And the turnaround time was 1 p.m. What is a turnaround time? Well, it means that no matter where you are in the mountain, it doesn't matter whether you've made the summit or not. I don't care if you're 100 feet from the summit, which is still very far when you're climbing Everest. It will take you a long time to do that. You have to turn around if it's 1 p.m. So why do they set the turnaround time? Well, because people before them know that if you get to the summit past 1 p.m., the chances that you're descending very dangerous parts of the mountain in darkness is too high. And in particular, there's a part of the mountain called the Southeast Ridge, which is quite narrow. If you slip, you'll either fall to your death into Nepal or fall to your death into Tibet. Neither two I great choices. what you like to do. Yeah. Yeah, those are two very bad choices. So if you get to the summit past 1 p.m. on the way down, you're too likely to be on dangerous parts of that mountain 
in darkness. And so essentially the calculus has changed and the probability of death has, has become too high. The turnaround time is 1 p.m. They all leave at midnight from camp four to ascend the mountain. But on this particular day, which was true of a lot of uh, climbs in, in the 90s, there was essentially a traffic jam. So there's so many people trying to summit the mountain on the same day along. Basically, they have to sort of do it in single file. There's it's a it's a route, the same route that they're all taking up the mountain that it's very slow going. Everybody's kind of jammed up. So Hutchinson recognizes that the going is slow and he's climbing with Tasky and Kasitsky because they've become friends and kind of climbing partners. And their expedition leader comes up behind them and he says to the expedition leader, Hey, can you just tell me like how long it's going to be till the summit? And the expedition leader tells Hutchinson three hours and then continues on up the mountain. So Hutchinson holds Tasky and Kasitsky back and just says, Hey, I think we've got a problem because we were just told that it was going to be three hours to the top of the mountain, but it's already 1130. And what that means is that we won't get to the summit till 2.30. Like, let's say we're even really fast. We would get there at like two and that's way past the turnaround time. So it seems to me that since we know already that we're not going to be to the summit by 1 p.m. and we've been told we have to turn around at 1 p.m., we should turn around now and go back to camp four, which they did and they lived. Now, Josh, it's probably not surprising to you why you have no idea who these three people are. Like this doesn't seem like a particularly dramatic story that anybody's going right. to write a book about or make a movie about or something. It's like, you have three people that climbed up Everest. They got within 300 feet of the summit. They followed the rules. They turned around, they lived yawn, except there was a book written about them and there was a movie made about them. And the book was into thin air by John Krakauer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a documentary called Everest and a movie of the same title called Everest. So you might be, you might be saying, wait a minute, I read that book. I remember that guy, Beck Weathers. Right. These Rob were not Hall. the protagonists. Right. Right. Rob Hall, Doug Hansen. <laughs> why, wait, why don't I know that? Did, did they not, did John Cracker leave them out of the book? And the answer is no, he did not leave them out of the book. They were part of Rob Hall's expedition. Those eight climbers, one of them was Doug Hansen. So they are absolutely in the book. And not only are they in the book, but John Krakauer says that they were the best decision makers on the mountain that day. He heralds them as basically heroes in terms of their decision-making. Now we know what happened to Rob Hall. He continued up the mountain. Remember, he was the expedition leader who told them it was three hours to the summit. So this now becomes pretty interesting given what we know about the information. So he gets to the summit at 2 p.m. Oh, that's past the turnaround time. And then he stays up there waiting for Doug Hansen to arrive, who gets there at 4 p.m. Now, you may say to yourself, well, maybe he had to wait. Maybe this was really good because he was making sure that Doug Hansen was OK, except that, remember, you have to go up that mountain basically in single file. So had he descended at 2 p.m., he would have caught Doug Hansen on the way down and being, been able to take him back with him. But Rob Hall really wanted to Doug, uh, Doug Hansen to summit the mountain. And so he waited there for him to summit the mountain. We can get into the reasons why if you want later. But he waits for him to summit the mountain. Doug Hansen gets there at 4 p.m. That is three hours after the turnaround time. He immediately collapsed and dies. And Rob Hall also dies on top of that mountain. So who are the heroes of this story? Well, we know that the way that we remember it is that, you know, 
Rob Hall is the hero of the story. But why, why don't we think of Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasitsky as heroes? They followed the rules. They turned around in a situation where other people weren't, which makes it all the harder. They got back down the mountain. They returned to their families. And I assume that they made those people's lives richer for it. Quitters have a branding problem. No one is called a hero for quitting. But quitters can make oodles of money. In fact, around the poker table, it's not how you play your hand, but rather how fast you fold that indicates how much money you can make. Here's Annie and Josh on the economics and sunk costs of poker. Let's let's turn to another quote, which is, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win. Of course, this quote is the famous line from the song The Gambler. You got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away. You got to know when to run. You noted that 75% of those lyrics, three of the four sentences, are about quitting. Yes. I want to I I talk about that, and I want to talk about poker. There's this other quote that people always say, which is, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I think you had a great anecdote about sitting next to somebody who was basically saying, you know, if I would have played that, I would have won, right? It, the counterfactual. Yeah. Right? And, and, and you sort of had an extreme absurdist view, which was like, well, you know, then just play every hand and see what happens. And, and the logic of how doing that is a sure path to ruin. So this gets a little bit back to that worthwhile, right? You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, sure, but you should really only taking shots that are worthwhile, right? I mean, that's that's the idea behind portfolio construction, right? It's not that every company that comes in the door you want to invest in, even though you're going to have some false negatives in there, okay, whatever. You want to construct a portfolio where the things in your portfolio all have a, a high enough probability of winning that across the portfolio you're going to win, right? So if we say you miss a hundred, you know, a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, then you would literally invest in every company that ever came and pitched you. And I don't think that anybody would then invest in you. This is the issue at the poker table as well. When people think about like, what makes a great poker player? It's like, oh, the ability to read other people and they're so aggressive and they're competitive. Sure, that's all true. But what really separates the great ones from the amateurs is their ability to quit. And you can see this in a variety of ways. The first is when they get dealt those first two cards in a game of Texas Hold'em, an amateur is going to fold less than 50% of the time. So folding is just quitting. I'm done. A professional only plays about 15 to 25% of the hands that they're dealt. So you've got uh, professionals are quitting 75 to 85% of the time, just right off the bat. And amateurs are quitting less than 50% of the time. Now, why is that? Well, part of it is what you just said, right? Like they'll say things like any two cards can win which is essentially, you know, you lose 100% of the shots that you don't take, right? So any two cards can win. But of course, what you want to add to that is sure, but not enough of the time to be profitable. So you have to think about that profit issue. Then there's also the issue of the pain of the counterfactual, which is, and in poker, it's particularly painful, as it probably was for Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasitsky, because mostly when we quit things, we have to imagine how they might have turned out. In poker, as it was for Hutchinson, Task, and Kasitsky, you know that people are going to go on beyond you. There were still people climbing that mountain. So imagine how courageous it was to turn around, knowing that they might continue up, get to the summit perfectly successfully, come down perfectly fine. And here you are like a, you know, a schmo at base camp. 
I mean, at at, uh, at Camp Four, right? So that's very hard in the face of that to think about. But what if, particularly as people are continuing on beyond you? And this is a problem at poker too. Like I can play a seven deuce, which is the worst two cards in the deck. And then the board comes a seven, a seven and a two. And oops, I would have won. And that is so painful for people that they know that they folded and gave up that opportunity to take that pot in, no matter whether it would be profitable in the long run or not. And so they'll start to play so that they can gather some more information so they can see some more cards that come to get to more certainty about whether it's correct to fold. And this is generally a problem with quitting is that that decision when it's correct is going to be uncertain right? Like nothing bad was happening to Tasky, Hutchinson and Kasitsky at the time. It was 1 p.m. They had lots of oxygen. It was fine, but it was correct for them to quit. But that's hard, right? Because that's at a very uncertain time when there's still some chance that you can recover the cause. When you fold right as you get those two cards, you haven't even seen the other five cards that come, right? And so this is very uncertain at that time. You're just doing a mathematical calculation. And what you find with people, just like these amateur poker players, is we generally want to accrue much more certainty than we ought to before we're willing to quit so that we know for sure that we had no other choice. And in fact, as Richard Thaler put it, we won't quit until it actually isn't even a choice anymore because we can see that the cards came and there was no way for our hand to win, right? Or we've already fallen into the crevasse or whatever, right? And so that's obviously well beyond the point that you should quit. So that's that's kind of the first problem. And then the second problem I think is one of a very simple sunk cost problem, which is, um, and they'll say this out loud, They'll get involved in a hand. The cards will come. The cards won't be particularly favorable to them. They'll continue playing. And then they'll say out loud after the hand, well, I couldn't fold. I had too much money in the pot. And it's like, okay, the money that you already had in the pot shouldn't have anything to do with whether you continue with the hand because that money is already sunk. It's already in the pot. What matters is, is the next dollar that you put in the pot going to be positive expected value or not? Are you going to get a positive return on investment or not? But this is a very common mistake people make. It's called the sunk cost effect, which is we take into account what we've already spent and deciding whether to continue. And when those amateurs say too much money in the pot, that's exactly what they're saying. And professionals just don't care as much about that. They're they're just like, I don't care. Like this hand's going nowhere. And what they recognize is that that extra money that you put in the pot beyond the point at which it's correct to quit is money that you can't put into better hands. When you stay in a job too long, that's time that you can't take to go put into a job that's more worthwhile. When you are developing a product that is going nowhere where you can't get product market fit and you keep at it, that is time and money and attention that you can't shift to something that would be more, more worthwhile that might change the world. And that's a tra the tragedy of sunk cost. It is a tragedy. And unfortunately, it's a tragedy that extends far outside the confines of a poker table. Halfway around the world in Ukraine, Putin continues his murderous war against the government in an aggressive bid for power. With hopes for a quick Russian victory dashed, Putin now faces his own tragedy of sunk costs. What do you do when you're losing but haven't lost? Here's Annie and Josh on quitting and war. I, I want to turn to sunk cost as it relates to some contemporary events, which are more serious. And then I yes. want to go to things that are less serious, like sports. But I want to start with war. You, you note that 
uh, citing some of your friends and behavioral uh, research from Danny Kahneman to Richard Thaler. On the sunk cost aspect, you said that something to the effect of that the rational actor presented and aware of the fact, regardless of how much time, money, reputation, et cetera, that they spent, that that they would consider only the future costs and benefits in deciding whether to continue with a course of action. Looking at Mm -hmm. that from a new time zero and basically thinking about the incremental return on that incremental cost of investment. Right now in the news, we have a rational, irrational, motivated actor in the form of Vladimir Putin, who now has a big sunk cost. And the potential gains or losses, the consequence of the decision that he makes from here, whether they potentially use tactical nuclear weapons or something worse, where he gains leverage, where he's able to create perception that he won't quit is something that is going to define in many ways the fate of the world and certainly Mm -hmm. uh, most proximate Europe. Uh, How do you think about, if we call it a dilemma that he faces, I don't know if he views it that way. How do you think about somebody that has engaged in a war deciding to quit? Here's the thing. I I think we like to look at Putin here as particularly irrational in the way that maybe others would not be. But in order to understand, I think, what we should expect of Putin's decision-making, how we might forecast whether he continues with the war, whether he escalates the war, whether he withdraws from the war, I think we need to go back to the 1970s. And a group of researchers, most famous among them would be Jeffrey Rubin and Barry Staw, who were inspired by seeing the U.S. mired in the Vietnam War to start studying a phenomenon called escalation of commitment. So Barry Staw wrote a very, very famous paper called Knee Deep in the Big Muddy, which is obviously a reference to, to the Pete Seeger song, that started with this premise. We have the intuition that when we get signals, negative signals from the world about the thing that we started, you know, adverse signs, bad news, that we will react to those signals by stopping what we're doing. Okay, so that's the intuition that he's starting with. And it goes on to show very clearly why it is not only that we won't stop, but we escalate our commitment to the cause. Okay, so we increase our commitment to these losing courses of action, even when the world is telling us very clearly that we ought not. And he references a quote from George Ball, who was the deputy secretary of state under Johnson. And this very famously came out in the Pentagon papers that George Ball had really warned as we were considering going into the Vietnam War. He said, once you get in it, you won't be able to get out because as soon as you start to accrue losses, you will not be able to get out. Why? For matters of like national pride, you know, saving face, not wanting to feel like people to feel like you made it a bad decision. You have, there's this issue of external validity, how other people are going to view you that becomes very bad in politics, right? Because now you have voters who are going to judge you for these decisions and they're going to be kind of in on that sunk cost with you. Like, well, if we leave now before we won, then you wasted all of the taxpayer money that you spent up until this point and so on and so forth. And then as Tony Thomas, who you know well, pointed out to me, he said there's this extra level of sunk cost that that is associated with a war, which is the lives lost. So Tony Thomas said, you know, think about how hard it is as a general when a gold star parent is clinging to you saying, go and win this thing so that my child did not die in vain. 
Think about the stakes mm-hmm. there, right? So so how do you overcome that as you're trying to say, but should I put the next life at risk? This becomes very hard to do. There's national identity involved. There's the career risk to the politician. There's the waste of taxpayer money. And then we have this, I don't want my child's life to have been wasted. What, what George Ball foresaw, this was before they'd ever gotten in the war, was don't do it. Because I don't think we can win. And once we start, it's going to be really, really hard to stop. And that's exactly what happened during the Vietnam War. And so now you have this, this uh, generation of researchers, um, Hal Arcs, Barry Staw, Jeffrey Rubin, who start to study these issues of escalation of commitment, really kind of inspired by seeing that. Now, when did we see that again? For America again. We see that in Afghanistan. We get involved in that war, despite the fact that there really weren't any signals that we were winning in Afghanistan. We stayed there for 20 years. I think that it was very clear that we were never sort of winning that war when we withdrew and the whole thing collapsed in about two days, right? Um, and there was a series of presidents, all of which made a, made a, a pledge one by one to withdraw, and we found it almost impossible, right? 20 years, 20 years later, we finally got out of it. So now let's take Vladimir Putin. Well, to tell you the truth, I mean, other things aside, in regards to the war, he's in a very similar situation to we were. You know, he's he's now committed lives to that war, obviously spent a tremendous amount of money on that war. Um, his forecast was terrible. So here's the thing we think if you say you're gonna if you say you're gonna take Kiev in three days and it's now six months later, shouldn't you figure out that you ought to withdraw? Well, yeah, sure, from a logical standpoint, that's clearly a losing endeavor. Things aren't going well. He's now having to conscript people who have no training whatsoever. His economy is in a shambles, you know, and so on and so forth. Like, yeah, but no, for the same reason that we got stuck in the Vietnam War and, and Afghanistan. And for Putin, I think that it's even a greater problem. And the reason why I think it's an even greater problem is that these issues get amplified when you are doing something that is against consensus. So the whole world, well, the whole Western world is against him on this. So if you withdraw, what does that mean for you? Right? Like how do you how do you give that up when you've taken such a stand against against the consensus of kind of the rest of the world, right? And then also there's the issue of like national identity. He's he he is synonymous in some ways with the national identity for Russia and then his own political career. Like it's not clear that he would still be in the position that he is if they actually withdrew. And so I don't think at any point once once that war was started, I said, well, that thing's not going to end anytime soon. Because it becomes so hard to extricate yourself from these types of conflicts. A word we haven't heard in a bit is quagmire, the sense of entering a situation and never finding a way out. The more we try, the more we just deepen our own commitment without escape. As hopeless as such situations can be, there are strategies for escaping a quagmire before we enter one. We've discussed pre-mortems previously on securities, and here's Annie going further into how anticipating failure can help us quit just as we need to. One of the things that we've talked about a lot in the past is the idea of a pre-mortem. Here at Lux, we always talk that failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. It's one of the ways that we try to identify and kill risks. You kill risk, you can create value. And that's really an act of imagination, thinking about what could go wrong 
And is there a way that we could throw time or money or talent at those risks to prevent them from happening? And, and if not, then if the company does fail or something goes wrong, and it's a risk that we a priori knew that we were taking, and we thought, if it works out, great, we're going to get paid for it. If not, okay, we're going to lose money and suffer a consequence. That's fine. I always find it a failure of process and a failure of imagination. If a company fails for something that we didn't anticipate, right? It just, something goes wrong and we, it wasn't even in the bounded range of the stuff that we imagined. Uh, I still view that as a failure of process. Um, you take it one step further and you just mentioned this kill criteria. Uh, a pre-mortem is useful to imagine it. A kill criteria uh, implies that there's some action that you're going to take or stop taking. So talk a little bit about that idea, because I think it's quite powerful of a kill criteria. So, okay. So if we go back to Barry Staw, the researcher who was really inspired by, or I guess in, inspired might be the wrong word, horrified by what happened with the Vietnam War and made really studying that tendency, his life's work, Let's go back to what he said, which is that we have the intuition that when we see adverse signals, when we get bad news about something that we've already started, that we'll pay attention and we'll stop. So let's think about this problem, right? When we start something, we are making the decision to start under conditions of uncertainty. The uncertainty is coming from two places. One is just the influence of luck on the outcome. And the other is kind of what you just really were alluding to, which is, that we know very little in comparison to all there is to be known for most decisions that we make, particularly for innovative ones or like early stage investing, for example, where maybe it's very early product market fit or even before. And so we're going to discover a whole bunch of stuff after the fact. And we've all had that feeling. I wish I knew then what I know now. You know, our intuition is that when we find that new stuff out, we're going to stop if it's bad news. And this is what he shows it just, you know, not just from the motivational side, but also from the behavioral economic side, from like Thaler, Kammerer, Kahneman, Tversky, so on and so forth, that those two disciplines merge to the same answer that we don't pay attention to those signals. So the question is why? Because that doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Because when you start something, you obviously have some sort of thesis about why you're going to start it. Clearly implied in that is some sort of forecast about how you think the future is going to unfold. And so if if the world then goes against you, why, why would you not pay attention to that? And I think this goes to something that Danny Kahneman says, which is the worst time to make a decision is when you're in it. So what does in it mean? When you're actually facing down that choice of having to stop what you're doing, because that's the moment that you go from failing to having failed. That's the moment that you have no chance of ever recovering the cause, right? So you can think about it this way. Like if I buy a stock at 50 and it's trading at 40, as long as I keep holding it, I might get back to 50. But the minute I sell it, that's when I know I can't, I can't get that money back. I have to take the sure loss at that point. And so that's, that's a lot of the resistance to quitting that's happening to us, right? And when we're in the middle of that decision, that is when we'll be bad in the same sense that we're going to be much worse at eating healthy if there's an open box of chocolates in front of us. That's the insight of being in it from Danny. So what we want to do is not be in it. So how can we do that? There's a couple ways we can do that, one of which is to think in advance. So when you choose to start something, you can imagine, well, let's imagine that this didn't go the way that I had hoped. What would I be seeing in the world that would tell me that it didn't go well? You know, so that's basically what I was doing with the sellers, right? You lost the deal at six months from now, you lost the deal. Looking back, there were early signals. We weren't going to win the deal. What were they? Now, notice we're not talking about a particular deal. They're not in the middle of a decision 
of having to qualify something out. I'm just asking them in the abstract to imagine this scenario so that we can generate the set of criteria. Now, it turns out that when you do that, you are just much more likely to pay attention to them and actually act in a much more rational way toward these loss cutting decisions than you otherwise would. You know, I think that when people hear that, they think, well, that seems like sort of a distinct, you know, a, a distinction without a difference. Like, what's the difference? If the if they're occurring in the world, like how is that different than thinking about them in advance and then noticing that they're occurring in the world? And it turns out it's all the difference in the world. And in fact, Barry Stahl's research suggests that when you do this, when you think in advance and you set those benchmarks in advance, that you can you end up looking about pre- very close to someone who was fresh to the decision. And that's really what we're trying to do. In other words, if I'm thinking, if I buy a stock at 50 and it's now trading at 40 and I'm trying to decide whether to hold it, I want my decision to look the same as someone who has never held the stock and is just choosing whether they should buy it today. That's what my goal is as a decision maker. And if you think about these things in advance, you're just much more likely to look like someone who's fresh to the decision. We always want to look fresh to a decision, and it's always good to get a fresh perspective. For more freshness on the power and strategies of quitting, read Annie Duke's new book, Quit. And now we're going to quit this episode and keep prepping for season two of Securities. Talk to you soon.